Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the 15th of April 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast, hosted by me, Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the gateway to New England. As always, I am so glad that you could join us for today's show. It really is a pleasure to have you. You know, there's no place like this one where you get to hear about some of the history and culture of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. This town was founded on July 18, 1640. Greenwich is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities, and with one foot in the past and the other in the present, I think that we can walk together forward exploring one of America's most notable and dynamic communities, a special place that we like to call home. Now, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years, as mine do, or even uh, 400 seconds or somewhere in between, whether you're here to stay or just passing through, well, we welcome you with open arms. You are very much a part of our history, and we are so glad to have you. Now, the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Now, before we go on, today is a very special day, uh, as I'm sure looking at your calendar. To all of our Jewish neighbors and friends near and far, please enjoy a glorious Passover celebration. Indeed, Passover arrives today. May you and your families be surrounded by love, prosperity, joy, and peace. Today is also Good Friday, as Christians anticipate the arrival of Easter on Sunday. Here's to wishing you joy and happiness. May you feel renewed by the change of seasons and to be filled with the love and hope for the days to come. To all, whatever your faith tradition is, or even if you don't have one, I send you my warmest wishes. I am grateful for your friendship and your support as always. Thank you. Coming up on today's show. According to Judge Frederick A. Hubbard, no one is quite sure when Greenwich Avenue originated. Nevertheless, he was able in the 1930s to share stories of the early development of what is today Greenwich, Connecticut's main shopping and dining destination from his book. Now, also just over a century ago, Erwin Edwards of his newspaper column, Greenwich Life, as it is and was, gave his readers a history lesson about the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad being one of America's oldest. So I'll share some news about that. Now, in crimes and misdemeanors in Greenwich history, as we continue to observe the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department, a century ago, a daring holdup was staged in neighboring Port Chester, New York, at the Mint Products Company. The bandits made good their escape in a wine-colored Dodge sedan, which was found abandoned along Brookside Drive in Greenwich. Bruce Park is recognized as one of the town of Greenwich's gems, a public park that is open to all. Now, did you know that a century ago, an idea was floated to establish golf links there, and it was seriously discussed, and I'll have details about 
that. Now, earlier this week, a planning and zoning meeting was held regarding a proposal by a local developer to demolish historic buildings in the town's 4th Ward Historic District. It's been written up in Greenwich Free Press and the Greenwich Time. I'll have some comments for you about that. Now, to all, again, I send you my warmest wishes, especially on this special weekend. I'm very grateful for your friendship and support. We thank you so much. Don't forget to sign the 4th Ward Historic District petition that we have to save those historic homes that we have out there. My friends, I've got a lot of history and more to share with you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Support is made possible by an award winner of the Landscape Architecture Foundation, Greenwich-based Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, believes that landscape design has the capacity to transform perceptions and ultimately inaugurate a deeper respect for the natural environment. Since 1979, Peter F. Alexander has been tireless in his commitment to excellence in project design, management, implementation, and personal service. Building upon a cornerstone of experience and trust, he believes that each landscaped project design expands the interpretation of design, craftsmanship, and sustainability. Peter F. Alexander is the founder of the Soundshore Environmental Information Institute. His notable projects include the Olympics Training Center at Lake Placid, New York, the master plan of the Calf Island Conservancy in Greenwich, Connecticut, numerous residential projects, and much more. Proudly collaborative in his approach, Peter F. Alexander's creations of immersive experiential landscape spaces cultivates a sense of community and connections that are second to none. Learn more about Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect at sitedesignassociates.com. Again, that's sitedesignassociates.com. You can also call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. By all means, when you contact Peter F. Alexander, please be sure to mention that you heard about him through the Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast with Jeffrey Bingham Mead. Thank you. We also welcome Long Island Sound Institute. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. The Institute aims to use modern planning and implementing new technology to conserve Long Island Sound. Looking forward to its stewardship in the area. To learn more about LISI, go on the web to www.li. S-I-S-T-U-D-Y dot info or call 475-897-5444. Again, that's 475-897-5444. And we are welcoming a new major supporter to the show. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is in the process of organizing and implementing a virtual Ambassador Museum based in Greenwich, Connecticut. It seeks to be a tribute to ambassadors, their families, experiences, and the millions of lives that have been affected by them. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is looking for records, photographs, and videos of ambassadors and their families or people who have been associated with ambassadors in the past. 
Monetary donations are also welcome. Funding supports the Virtual Museum, which is receiving support from the University of Denver and the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. Throughout the town of Greenwich's 20th century history, a number of ambassadors lived here, perhaps the most prominent being Ambassador Joseph Werner Reed. He grew up on historic Denbig Farm off Riversville Road in the backcountry and served as ambassador to Morocco and as chief of protocol of the United States, among other diplomatic assignments. On future shows, we're looking forward to featuring histories of those from Greenwich who served the nation in various ambassadorial roles. You can learn more at amusa.info. Again, that's amusa.info. You can call 203-347-4604. Again, that's 203-347-4604. Or you can write to Post Office Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Again, that post office box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. My friends, there's no doubt in my mind that one of the most prolific and gifted storytellers in Greenwich's history was Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard. He was a lawyer and a writer, and his life spanned the concluding years of the 19th century and the first third of the 20th century. Now, at one time, he used the pseudonym Ezekiel Lemondale when writing about what he called Cracker Barrel stuff. His column, The Judge's Corner, was published for years in the Greenwich News. Now, I will tell you that we are very indebted to a gentleman by the name of Frank Nicholson, who years ago collected Judge Hubbard's Greenwich News articles and published them in compendium form as Greenwich History, The Judge's Corner, 150 Vintage Newspaper Columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson. Uh, You can find this book, by the way, as all always in the Greenwich Library system. I strongly recommend it. And because we have gotten into the habit of uh, sharing stories, I have another one that I'm going to share with you. I had uh, a number of, uh, of stories in mind. I didn't know which one to do. But since we are on a holiday weekend, and of course people are going to be visiting from out of town and um, and whatnot, uh, the place to, uh, to congregate in Greenwich, of course, is Greenwich Avenue. He wrote a very interesting article about... Uh, uh, the um, history of um, uh, and origins of Greenwich Avenue. Uh, it was published on March 27 in 1930. And I thought that this would be the one that I would share with you today. So sit back, relax, and enjoy as I share with you column number 70, The Judge's Corner, Greenwich Avenue, and Indian Trail to the Sound by Frederick A. Hubbard. Now, Whitman Bailey 
The artist, in a recent published letter, asks for some historical facts concerning Greenwich Avenue. That street has been much in the public eye, and the impression has gone abroad that it is a, quote, a tree-embowered highway, unquote. The business section has never had trees which warrant such a description. <laughs> Consider how the business section appeared in 1879 from a point on the east side of the street now occupied by the Bowles Building. From that point all the way to the railroad station was strictly residential. From East Elm Street to what is now the school property was a tree-embowered section quite similar to the section of Mason Street between Lewis and Elm Streets. But in 1899, this Greenwich Avenue section suffered a change of grade, possibly from a hint from the Charlie Company, which appeared the following year. The top of Merwin Meads Hill was cut eight feet, growing less in depth and ending back to Elm Street but saving every two of those fine elms except the one in front of the Trust Company building and the one on the opposite corner. At what time a tempest of opposition would have been justifiable? Rowan Mead had set out those elm trees in the one still standing on Elm Street in 1854, and the change of grade was wholly unnecessary unless for the convenience of the trolley company. No one has any positive knowledge of the origin of Greenwich Avenue, but it is a reasonable conjecture that it was once an Indian trail leading to the sound of the unpronounceable tribe occupying the present borough territory. The Indians loved seafood. Every conclave had its clam roast, and many excavations along the avenue have disclosed the evidence of those occasions in the still existing below-the-surface piles of clam shells. There also have been discovered many fine specimens of arrowhead and stone hatchets. This was the road to Piping Point. The word piping, quote-unquote, in Greenwich has not been in general use for many years. Most of our readers have never heard of it. But it applies to a brook in what was once Charles Seaman's swamp, long since reclaimed and built upon, and running south, somewhat on the line of Mason Street, and emptying into the sound opposite the Bruce Museum. It also applies to the point, terminating with the lumberyard, and also to the island where the Crosby Mill is located. Captain Daniel Merritt's market sloop docked on the west side of Piping Point, and his home, the large colonial house, now the property of the railroad company, is still standing. The road to Piping Point, the original name of Greenwich Avenue, was therefore one of considerable importance. It was 18 feet wide, and its southerly section took the course of Arch Street, and after 1848 ran directly, as now, to the railroad station. It is not intended to infer that the present lower end of Greenwich Avenue did not exist before 1848, for since 1836, and doubtless many other years, it had been the road to Rocky Neck. The course of the road to Piping Point, from end to end, was through land devoted to agriculture. In such locations, shade trees were not looked upon with favor by the farmers, and even the hedgerows were severely trimmed. There were rustic stone walls in both sides, and the sound of view was unbroken. It was very muddy in spring and very dusty in summer. 
There were no sidewalks, the 18 feet measuring from fence to fence. A certain, at certain times, pedestrians found it impassable and were accustomed to climb over the walls and walk upon sod ground. Such was the condition of our Greenwich Avenue in 1854. Greenwich had then a population of about 6,000. At the opening of the 19th century, Greenwich, although quite remote from New York, was beginning to attract the attention of city people as a desirable place of residence. In 1802, Hannah Courtney, a New York lady of wealth and social position, purchased the old Hobby Tavern, which stood on the site of the present residence of J.H. J. H. Fennessy. That would be 68 East Putnam Avenue. Later, in 1807, he sold this and many other adjoining acres to Beale N. Lewis. He was a wealthy New York lawyer, and upon the Fennessy site, he built the house. That was the mansion of the town for many years. It was the home of Henry Merton Benedict in 1854, and later was the home of Professor William G. Peck until his death in 1892. Mr. Pe Mr. Benedict was the elder brother of the late E.C. Benedict. He was one of the early commuters. The view from his rear piazza extended from Extension Light to the Norwalk Islands. When the 727 train started to cross the bridge to Kaskab, Mr. Benedict would enter his carriage and Patrick McCormick, his driver of the black team Billy and Jim, would make the station as the train pulled in. But Mr. Benedict, then a young man of 29, was not satisfied with the road to Piping Point as a means of reaching the railroad station. His was the first call for the widening of what has since been known as Greenwich Avenue. But the selectmen and the warden and the burgesses of the newly established borough denied his petition. They thought a width of 18 feet quite sufficient. But Mr. Benedict, at his own expense, brought an action in the county court, then having jurisdiction, and obtained a decree compelling the widening of the street when it received a more, the more dignified name of Greenwich Avenue. Trees were not considered by those interested in the northerly section of the street, not until 1877 were many business buildings erected. Peter Acker's garden extended from what is now Pickwick Corner, a distance of more than 300 feet. Beyond that point to the railroad station was land under cultivation. It was not until the fall of 1854 that the first business building, owned by John Dayton and Merritt Mead, was erected, and it still stands, owned by Mary F. Dayton State. The center of the business was on Main Street, as Putnam Avenue was called, and at Sherwood Place, then Mechanic Street. When business came, but few trees were set out. It was in 1874 that John Voorhees created the Lennox House, that the elm tree and the corner of Putnam Avenue was set out. From that point to the foot of the hill near the Talbot building, there is not another tree except four small elms of bad shape and condition closely huddled under the corner elm. A number of letters have accumulated in the basket concerning this subject. Two of them are uncomplimentary to the women and the two of them pile abuse on the borough office, officials. They are, of course, suppressed, and their only value is to show how much interest exists in the matter. 
but another letter offers some valuable suggestions. It states that the building line is the present front of the existing buildings. The covered piazzas or stoops should be cut off in the same manner as that of Fifth Avenue above 42nd Street was treated a few years ago. Then set the curbs on the section where no trees exist. Rearrange the underground pipelines and give people a chance to see what an improvement will be made. Much of Rockefeller Park, through which Lexington Avenue runs, was an apple orchard set out by Alvin Mead nearly a century ago and later owned by Henry M. Benedict. The last surviving tree of this once fruitful orchard was a mammoth one in the rear of Dr. Edwin and Hardy's residence. It was much decayed in the trunk, leaving only a thin shell of bark. To prevent a possible disaster from the winds of March, Dr. Hardy has removed the ancient tree. So, there you go. Nicholson, by the way, uh, had this to say about Judge Hubbard um, and when he was compiling his works. He said, quote, One feels after reading him that here was Greenwich's Renaissance man, traveler, sportsman, epicure, observer of the contemporary scene, arborist, botanist, critic, humorist, naturalist, an oracle, a profiler of people, a recorder of events, a describer of places, even a militant protester on a, a sound recorder of various aspects of Greenwich history. Let me tell you something right now. If you are looking for a niche to fill here in Greenwich, I think that we have a list right there. You can pick one of those or maybe invent one of your own and uh, start recording your own thoughts about uh, the history of, of Greenwich, Connecticut. I remind you all as I start to close that Greenwich History, The Judge's Corner, 150 vintage newspaper columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson is available from the Greenwich Library. It is one of my favorites, and perhaps it will become yours as well. Thank you. You're in for a pleasant surprise at Coffee for Good. Located in the 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue behind the Second Congregational Church, Coffee for Good has quickly emerged as one of Greenwich, Connecticut's top coffee houses. Its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to quality and inclusion. Coffee for Good shines as a unique nonprofit partnership between the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with disabilities through a self-sustaining platform so they can thrive in the community. The 1856 Solomon Mead House provides a 19th century style hip and unpretentious historical setting that evokes a setting filled with diverse people who are all inspired. Delightful staff, super friendly baristas, great coffee, pastries and more, Coffee for Good provides free Wi-Fi free parking, indoor and outdoor seating, with a relaxed local vibe that has become a popular study spot and destination for informal business meetings and gatherings. My friends, take it from me. The word about this gem has gotten around. Located in the historic 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue, in Greenwich, behind the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill Historic District and listed on the National Register of Historic Places, 
Coffee for Good is open daily, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more at coffeeforgood.org. Chris Park is probably, and I think without doubt, one of Greenwich's most incredible gems. It is a beautiful place to walk through if you are new to town and you have not visited Bruce Park. I strongly, strongly invite you to um, to do so. Now, a century ago, in fact, uh, this editorial that I'm going to share with you appeared on in April 21st, 1922, and it was about a proposition uh, to establish golf links in in Bruce Park, and I'd like to just share this with you in a little bit more. So the, um, the editorial says as follows, the proposition to establish a golf links in Bruce Park has, is being discussed and manifestly meeting with favor. It is argued that in as much as the tract belongs to the town and a vast acreage of it put to no practical use, provision might well be made for its enjoyment by such of our own fellow townsmen as would appreciate the delights and benefits of a game of golf as much as the exclusive golf club members who monopolize the sport simply because the rank and file have no place or opportunity to indulge in it. Hmm. With a public golf ground, who knows, but the opportunity it would present might develop champion players out of the young men who now don't know the difference between a nib-click and a highball. Keep up the agitation. By the way, I have no idea what the difference is between a nib-click and a highball is, so I guess that cancels me out. But anyway, I wanted to share with you um, this uh, bit of history about... Um, you know, the idea of establishing a, a golf course or golf links in Bruce Park. Obviously, if you've been there, um, you won't see any golf links there because it wasn't done. But anyway, I thought it was interesting history. This is from literally a century ago. So uh, here we are. The uh, headline asks, well, why not a, Why not golf in Bruce Park? Idea of establishing links on town's property is being agitated. All right. Here we go. Now, Greenwich has two large public parks, but no golf grounds. Why not? Asks the golf player and many who are not golf players, but who would like to learn and play the game. No one seems to know why there is not a golf course, not a course in either Bruce or Byron Park, for they both are large enough for such purpose and portions of them just suited for a golf course. There seems to be no reason why such ground has not been laid out, other than that the idea has never been earnestly suggested or agitated. The matter seems only to have been talked about here and there. Quote, there is plenty of room in Bruce Park to play golf, unquote, said Superintendent Silas Sutherland of the park, when asked what he thought of it, quote, I know that it would please many people, for they have told me so. Of course, I can't go ahead and do anything about it unless I am told to do so by the selectmen. But I'd like to, and I know there would be no objection to such golf course. How could there be? There is a ball field in the park that is all right and a good thing. There's a tennis court there. Two, the town furnished the ground, but the players have to provide the netting and rackets, unquote. 
That a golf course in Bruce Park would meet with the approval of the public and be greatly appreciated by the townspeople, there is no reason to doubt for the news, and Graphic has interviewed a number of prominent men on the subject. All were of the same opinion, saw no objection to it whatsoever, but argued that it would have uh, it would be a very good thing for the town to have such golf course. The public has no place to play golf, and Bruce Park would give those who do not belong to private clubs an opportunity to play and enjoy the sport. Some years ago, a club called the North Valley Golf Club was organized in Greenwich. It had a small course on what was known as the Rockefeller Lot on Millbank Avenue. The club became very popular and had many members. The plot was sold and cut up into building sites, and the club had to disband because no other place near the borough could be secured. You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Mark your calendars, Monday, 25th of April, 2022. Why? Well, rock harpist and singer Erin Hill, who has roots here in Greenwich, Connecticut, returns to the cutting room in New York City, bringing her electric harp and unique brand of harp and vocal music, singing and playing the music of Kate Bush with her band. Night-Scented Harp, the music of Kate Bush by Aaron Hill, features Aaron singing and playing songs from the albums The Kick Inside, Lionheart, Never Forever, The Dreaming, Hounds of Love, The Sensual World, Ariel, and more. Her band joins her with drums, percussion, harmony vocals, violin, cello, and pedal steel guitar. New York City's Daily News says, quote, Aaron Hill lights up the stage, unquote. Women Who Rock magazine says about Aaron Hill, quote, This redhead delivers a much-needed dose of marvelous pop ditties with her simply beautiful and honest voice, witty lyrics, and excellent musicianship, unquote. The Cutting Room is located at 44 East 32nd Street in Manhattan. Learn more at thecuttingroomnyc.com. Doors open at 6.30 p.m., Advanced tickets $20 each, tickets at the door $25. Learn more and purchase tickets at erinhill.com. That's spelled E R I N H I L L.com. Well, my friends, it's time for historical crimes and misdemeanors, uh, and that would be uh, our section of this show in which we 
observe the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich, Connecticut Police Department. Today's story is um, of a crime that we share with uh, Port Chester, New York, our neighbors uh, over in um, New York State and Westchester County. Um, And this dates from April 14, 1922, so literally a century ago. Um, The headline says, Bandits Hold Up Paymaster. And uh, the thing that that struck me about this particular story was the the incredible amount of detail um, uh, of this um, incident, uh, of this crime. And so I will um, get on and share this with you. Um, The story goes as follows. Probably the most daring holdup that has ever occurred in this region was staged last Saturday morning, shortly after 9 o'clock, when Lucas Myers, paymaster of the Mint Products Company in Portchester, and his companion, John Meehan, were robbed of between $3,500 and $4,000, which represented a part of the payroll. The bandits made good their escape in a wine-colored Dodge sedan, which was later found abandoned alongside the curb at Brookside Drive, Greenwich. Myers and Meehan had been to the First National Bank in Portchester for the money and were walking back to the mint factory. Meehan carried a black cowhide bag which contained the money. Myers had a loaded revolver in his pocket. As they proceeded along the west side of the street, they saw two young men, apparently engaged in conversation under the North Main Street Railroad Bridge. The Dodge machine was standing alongside the curb. As Myers and Meehan passed the two men, the pair suddenly wheeled about and each flashed a forty-five caliber revolver. Hmm. One of the highwaymen quickly placed his hand over the revolver in Meyer's pocket and took the weapon from him, and with the other hand pushed his own gun against Meyer's stomach. The next bandit thrust his revolver into Meehan's side. Quote, Hand over that payroll, stick up your hands, and turn to the wall, unquote, said one of the bandits. The bag was snatched from Meehan's hand, and then the two robbers backed away, exclaiming, Quote, we will shoot you men down like dogs if you make a single move or outcry, unquote. Well, <laughs> then they jumped into the, uh, the Dodge sedan, which there was a driver waiting, and the machine sped away, leaving such a dense cloud of smoke behind it that the factory men were unable to see the numbers. I'm assuming, my friends, that that means the numbers on the uh, Uh, the license plate, I guess. Anyway, on with the story. The car turned into Mill Street and went toward Greenwich by way of the trolley track road. At the rich quarries, the machine passed Elmer Merritt, a road foreman of East Portchester, in the employ of the town highway department, who was uh, on his way to Greenwich in a Ford machine. Merritt said the car was making about 50 miles an hour, and as it shot by, the empty bag was thrown out. Merritt picked it up and brought it to police headquarters, not knowing at the time of the holdup. Later, the bag was turned over to the Portchester police. The car was next seen by a letter carrier in Bruce Park, here. Myers and Meehan hurried to the factory and quickly notified the Portchester police, who in turn communicated with the Greenwich police. Captain James J. Nedley, who was at the desk, received the message here, and a police chief Talbot soon had his men on the lookout for the bandits. 
Police stations in Connecticut and New York were also notified. At about 12 o'clock noon, the Dodge sedan was found by motorcycle cop Cullen, abandoned by on Brookside, Brookside Drive, just the direction it went. The parties were unable to state. Later, police chief Talbot learned that the car had been stolen on, uh, on the previous evening in the vicinity of East 51st Street, New York City. It belonged to Frank Nolan of 235 Bergen Street, Brooklyn. It bore the New York License number 46691. The machine was brought to police headquarters and was later turned over to its owner. Myers and Meehan have been making weekly trips to the bank for the payroll for several weeks past, and the bandits had evidently been watching their movements. Prior to that time, the payroll of the Mint Company had been taken from the Greenwich Trust Company. It is the, it is the only Portchester concern that has not avail, availed itself of police protection in carrying payrolls. A peculiar feature of the holdup is that there is much traffic passing under the bridge during the morning hours and numerous pedestrians walking up and down the sidewalks. It is said that two men who were on the opposite side of the street saw the whole thing but thought it was a moving picture, which was being staged. The holdup occurred within 25 feet of the factory itself. Neither Myers nor Meehan was able to give a very good description of the men, owing to the fact that the holdup was done so quickly and both bandits stood in a crouching position. There's always something going on at the Greenwich Historical Society Bush Holly House Museum, Library, and Archives at GreenwichHistory.org. The Greenwich Historical Society is offering its second annual Fairy House Workshop, April 19 through 20. Students will learn lore surrounding a fairy's home, from the Japanese Urashima Taro to the English Goblin Market to the Hudson Valley's own revolutionary Whip Van Winkle. As students learn this lore, they will build a fairy house for their home garden. Students will design and build their house out of a wide array of natural and recycled materials. What makes the best roof? How do I build a window? How many chairs does a fairy need? In the pursuit of these answers, students will get to test their creativity, ingenuity, and the laws of physics. Who knew building a fairy house could be so much fun. There will be four classes offered. Afternoon classes are for children aged 8 through 10 who can work independently. These classes are for children only, no parents. Morning classes are for children aged 6 to 8 with parents encouraged but not required to come and build with their young ones. On April 21st, the Shining a Light Lecture Series 2022 virtual event features The Diseased Ship, a cautionary tale about New England's twin plagues with Dr. Meadows Dibble. On August 1st, 1819, a majestic main-built ship docked at Boston's Long Wharf, completing a nearly year-long voyage to West Africa and the West Indies that only a few crew members were fortunate enough to survive. This dramatic story features a prominent Yankee sea captain, a tragedy on the high seas, a viral outbreak, a major political cover-up, and the conspiracy of silence that has lasted two centuries surrounding New England's involvement in the slave trade. (laughs) 
Following these historical threads into the present day allows us to consider the ways in which our region's repressed history of complicity with the business of slavery relates to our current national conversations about race, privilege, identity, and access to the American dream. Meadow Dibble is Director of Community Engaged Research at the Permanent Commission on the Status of Racial, Indigenous, and Tribal Populations and Founding Director of Atlantic Black Box, a nonprofit devoted to researching and reckoning with New England's role in the slave trade and the economy of enslavement. Artful Arrangements, Tulips and Larkspur is scheduled for April 22nd, 10 a.m. to noon. Join us as we explore history and take floral inspiration from one of Constant McRae's masterful designed spring floral arrangements. In this masterclass, Trish O'Sullivan, former director at the New York Botanical Garden, will present principles and simple techniques through demonstration, discussion, and step-by-step hands-on instruction, along with tips on how to keep flowers looking fresh and long-lasting to ensure floral design success. Now, my friends, you can learn more and register for any of these on the web at greenwichhistory.org or call area code 203-869-6899. The Greenwich Historical Society works to preserve and interpret Greenwich history to strengthen the community's connection to our past, to each other, and to our future. Bruce Park is probably, and I think without doubt, one of Greenwich's most incredible gems. It is a beautiful place to walk through if you are new to town and you have not visited Bruce Park. I strongly, strongly invite you to um, to do so. Now, a century ago, in fact, uh, this editorial that I'm going to share with you appeared on in April 21st, 1922, and it was about a proposition uh, to establish golf links in in Bruce Park, and I'd like to just share this with you in a little bit more. So the, um, the editorial says as follows, the proposition to establish a golf links in Bruce Park has, is being discussed and manifestly meeting with favor. It is argued that in as much as the tract belongs to the town and a vast acreage of it put to no practical use, provision might well be made for its enjoyment by such of our own fellow townsmen as would appreciate the delights and benefits of a game of golf as much as the exclusive golf club members who monopolize the sport simply because the rank and file have no place or opportunity to indulge in it. Hmm. With a public golf ground, who knows, but the opportunity it would present might develop champion players out of the young men who now don't know the difference between a nib-click and a highball. Keep up the agitation. By the way, I have no idea what the difference is between a nib-click and a highball is, so I guess that cancels me out. But anyway, I wanted to share with you um, this uh, bit of history about um, you know the idea of establishing a, a golf course or golf links in Bruce Park. Obviously, if you've been there, um, you won't see any golf links there because it wasn't done. But anyway, I thought it was interesting history. This is from literally a century ago. So uh, here we are. The uh, headline asks, well, why not a why not golf in Bruce Park? Idea of establishing links on town's property is being agitated. All right. 
Here we go. Now, Greenwich has two large public parks, but no golf grounds. Why not? Asks the golf player and many who are not golf players, but who would like to learn and play the game. No one seems to know why there is not a golf course, not a course in either Bruce or Byron Park, for they both are large enough for such purpose and portions of them just suited for a golf course. There seems to be no reason why such ground has not been laid out, other than that the idea has never been earnestly suggested or agitated. The matter seems only to have been talked about here and there. Quote, there is plenty of room in Bruce Park to play golf, unquote, said Superintendent Silas Sutherland of the park, when asked what he thought of it, quote, I know that it would please many people, for they have told me so. Of course, I can't go ahead and do anything about it unless I am told to do so by the selectmen. But I'd like to, and I know there would be no objection to such golf course. How could there be? There is a ball field in the park that is all right and a good thing. There's a tennis court there. Two, the town furnished the ground, but the players have to provide the netting and rackets, unquote. That a golf course in Bruce Park would meet with the approval of the public and be greatly appreciated by the townspeople, there is no reason to doubt, for the news and graphic has interviewed a number of prominent men on the subject. All were of the same opinion, saw no objection to it whatsoever, but argued that it would have, uh, it would be a very good thing for the town to have such golf course. The public has no place to play golf, and Bruce Park would give those who do not belong to private clubs an opportunity to play and enjoy the sport. Some years ago, a club called the North Valley Golf Club was organized in Greenwich. It had a small course on what was known as the Rockefeller lot on Millbank Avenue. The club became very popular and had many members. The plot was sold and cut up into building sites and the club had to disband because no other place near the borough could be secured. My friends, I am Jeffrey Binghamid, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of Greenwich, and I am inviting you to shop local at the Greenwich Historical Society Museum Store. Now, the discerning shopper's destination for unique accessories and gifts, the museum store is a local gem. Trust me on this. We offer convenient online shopping and pickup, ample parking, as in free, and complimentary gift wrapping. Browse the latest arrivals and relax at the Artist's Cafe during your next visit, too. Now, the museum store is open Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., and weekends, 12 p.m. to 4 p.m. Now, the Greenwich Historical Society is celebrating its 90th year, and we have had a small retail operation for 25 years here on the Bush Holly House site in Cascob. The new expanded museum store opened in October 2018 with the completion of our new campus located in the former Topi Taverns in the Cascob Hub. Our store reflects our local history and many important ways with unique gifts and items related to Greenwich, our site, and history with featured items related to current uh, exhibitions. 
You can get gifts, books, mugs, cards from local artists, and children's sections are particularly popular. My friends, you can learn more by going online to GreenwichHistory.org. There is a special link to the museum store. You can shop online. That's really great. The museum store is located at the Greenwich Historical Society campus, 47 Strickland Road, Coscob, Connecticut, 06807. If you have further questions, you can call Call 203-869-6899. Again, that's 203-869-6899. As always, please help us to fulfill our mission to preserve and interpret Greenwich history, to strengthen the community's connection to our past, to each other, and to our future. Thank you. A local columnist by the name of Erwin Edwards had a column that was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic called Greenwich Life As It Is and Was. Uh, And uh, the column that I have uh, chosen to share with you today uh, dates from March 31st, 1922, and um, it centers around the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad. We know it today uh, as Metro North. Um, As it turns out, when any of you uh, get on that, uh, any of the trains that go out of um, Greenwich or Coscob, Old Greenwich, uh, and, uh, and Riverside, uh, or anywhere along the line, quite frankly, you are getting on one of the oldest railroad lines in American history. Um, and so it's something that we don't think about very much in our everyday hurried lives. So uh, I thought that I would uh, share a little bit of historical, historical perspective with you. And it goes as follows. One of the oldest railroads in the United States is the New York and New Haven. It is not the oldest, for that distinction belongs to the Baltimore and Ohio Road, which was built in 1828. But Connecticut was really the pioneer state in the building of railroads. Its manufacturers and progressive men, and there were many, saw at once the advantage of such transportation. For it was but a few years after the Baltimore and Ohio began operations that rails were laid out in this state and cars were running over them. First came the Norwich and Worcester, which connected Norwich, Connecticut, that busy and progressive town of cotton and other mills, and which resembles Greenwich in natural beauties and beautiful homes, with Worcester, Massachusetts. Next followed the New London and Northern, and not a great while afterwards. Its line ran through Norwich and up the north to Massachusetts and later into Vermont. And from about that time, railroads were crisscrossed uh, the, uh, the states in almost every direction, connecting cities and towns with New York and Boston. The first train on the New York and New Haven Road passed through Greenwich in December 1848. In other words, just 74 years ago, and that was but 20 years after the first train came into Baltimore on the Baltimore and Ohio Road. The New York and New Haven had its troubles and its trials, and and they were serious, too. Before its line was built, many obstacles were put in its way in obstinate opposition to its coming. While there were many people in the state, progressive men who were quick to realize the value of transportation afforded by a railroad, there were others, and they were there were many too, very conservative men, who were very much adverse to new ways and methods. They looked with a good deal of disfavor on the building of the railroads which would pass through the towns, particularly those in which they lived. 
This was true in Norwalk and Greenwich. That feeling of disfavor became very pronounced in those places. It was the original plan of the New York and New Haven Company to make the survey for the road as straight as possible, especially from Portchester to Bridgeport. In fact, such a survey was made. The line ran much further to the north than the present route, which hugs the coastline. Norwalk, it is said, would have no railroad pass through, uh, through that town. It was out of the question. It could not be allowed, and Norwalk fought the railroads coming with such vigor and determination that the town won out. It had its own way, and the bars were put up. What was the result? A station called South Norwalk was opened to the south of Norwalk. Today, South Norwalk is a busy and thriving community, while Norwalk is as dead as a doornail in some ways. <laughs> in Greenwich, it has always been said uh, the certain feeling existed uh, to a certain, now where is it? Oh, yes, extent. There was objection, which became so strong that the company changed its survey to nearer the shore. All this accounts for the many curves on the road between Portchester and Stamford. In the original survey, it had been used, the road would have laid its rails very close to Coscob and Mianus, and the long and expensive drawbridge, which was built between Coscob and Riverside, would not have been necessary, for the Mianus would have been spanned further up the river, above navigation where the stream was much narrower. It cost some money to build the road, far more than it would today with modern drills, steam shovel, and other labor-saving machinery, and also on account of the rocky cuts, the curves, and the grade, and it was a single-track road. Four years after the road was built, its business had increased to such proportions that the company foresaw that to meet that growth and keep up with that business, another track must be laid. It was in 1852 that this second track was laid from New Rochelle to New Haven. Then the New York and New Haven became a double-tracked railroad. The station agent in those days was a man of all work about the depot. He sold tickets, checked the baggage, made the fires, was the Adams Express agent, and this up to only a comparatively few years ago. He not only had all of those duties to attend to, but also he must put up a signboard every time a train came and went, giving the time of its arrival and departure. This board was placed at the end of the station in a conspicuous place where the engineer of the train could plainly see it. When the work was completed, which took some two or three years, it became necessary that another depot should be built, and that one made of brick was erected on the south side of the four tracks. Before this work was begun, the company had obtained quite a piece of property further to the west of the present station and about a quarter of a mile distant, and here a large freight yard was laid out, for the freight business of the road had grown to great proportions. It was said at the time that the company proposed to make the new and handsome depot on this newly acquired property. That the company did not contemplate such a thing, there is no doubt. But the construction engineers who were called to look over the field came here and advised against the change. 
giving as a reason that the curves both to at the west and at the east of the proposed site would make it either safe or advantageous. Would not make it, I'm sorry, uh, safe or advantageous. There had been so much complaint about the smoke nuisance of the engines, which threw cinders far into the air and which were blown where the wind listed to the annoyance and discomfort of households, that when electricity was being considered by railroads as a motive power, the subject was taken up by this company. Also viewing the change from other advantageous standpoints, it was more economical than steam, less bother and trouble, and possessed other qualities of merit. So the company decided to electrify the road from New York to Stamford and later to New Haven. In 1907, this change was effected as far as Stamford. Since that time, the work of installing the electric system has been going on and has reached New Haven. The New York and New Haven Road, or as it is called officially, the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad, although it has been called the, quote, Connecticut Company, unquote, and the Consolidated, unquote, has, in the 74 years of its life, made a great history, both in railroading and in other ways. My friends, this past Tuesday, the Planning and Zoning Commission met uh, regarding the Church Street 8-30G uh, affordable housing proposed uh, project uh, by a local developer that involves tearing down a number of structures within the 4th Ward Historic District uh, near the uh, the downtown area of Greenwich. It's about maybe, what, a block or so from um, Greenwich Hospital. Um, it was a meeting, if you did not get to, um, to attend via Zoom, uh, I'm sure that there will be uh, future meetings, and I do strongly urge you to, um, to attend these. They are very, very educational, to, um, uh, to say the least. I'm going to be very, very honest with you. I am very much against the uh, proposal that has been put forth by the, uh, the local developer to, um, to basically um, transform and destroy uh, a, a historic district in our town on a street that is known for being very narrow and uh, very problematic for those who, um, who have to drive it um, by putting up a, um, a very, very significantly large uh, structure. Um, it, it, I think it's going to wreak havoc, quite frankly, on the area. And I would urge uh, those that are putting forth this proposal or this proposed um, uh, development to strongly consider putting this, quite frankly, elsewhere. I happen to think that the design is quite attractive, um, and I understand the reasons that they would like to, uh, to build uh, this, uh, as one person put it on, um, uh, on social media, a, a fortress. Uh, I, I just don't think that this is the right location for it, and what it does for the, um, uh, for the historic district known as the Fourth Ward, I think, is, um, is just awful. Um, as I close tonight, there is a page on the Greenwich Historical Society website at GreenwichHistory.org that talks about the Fourth Ward, and I'm just going to read it to you. I think it's rather self-explanatory. Fourth Ward dates from 1836 to 1929. In 1836, this neighborhood began as one of only two centrally located urban subdivisions in Greenwich that predate the coming of the railroad in 1848. In contrast to the summer homes of wealthy New Yorkers on the Post Road, the concentration of predominantly Irish families who settled this area earned it the nickname 
Fourth Ward, after the working-class immigrant neighborhood in Lower Manhattan. In 1860, immigrants built the town's first Roman Catholic church, St. Mary's Church, on William Street, which was demolished in 1910. In 1900, over 20 multifamily dwellings solidified the area's working-class image, and 10% of the, na- of the neighborhood was home to African Americans. Working primarily as laborers, laundresses, and chauffeurs, they enlarged a house on North Field Street into the First Baptist Church, one of only two African-American churches in Greenwich that still stand today. By 1929, development stalled until 1955, when the first commercial buildings were built, signaling the redevelopment that has continued to this day. Again, I want to mention that the 4th Ward Historic District is also registered on the National Register of Historic Places. Uh, As far as I know, under the um, 8-30G legislation, uh, the historic districts are actually protected from uh, this kind of thing, but I guess we have to go through with the process anyway. One thing that um, I I called upon, and, and as many of you who are my studied listeners know, I had Dan Quigley. Um, who did extensive research about some of the background of uh, desegregate Connecticut and uh, what uh, their agenda was and so on and so forth. Uh, I I have to admit that I find myself a smidge uh, mystified that this flawed piece of legislation has been allowed to stay on the books since 1989. I think our legislators need to to get the ball rolling, um, should have done this a long time ago, Uh, to uh, revise or reform or even abolish and replace this legislation. There's no doubt that we need affordable housing. It just depends on what you define affordable housing to be and what uh, cost you are willing to pay, not just in terms of money, but in terms of its impact on our local landscape and our local culture. Uh, I urge you all to uh, to please sign the petition to, um, uh, to keep those historic structures up and um, and with us for generations to come, and uh, to please uh, contact your legislators and to make your views known about uh, this particular development. I thank you. Well, you know what they say about time flying when you're having fun. <laughs> I'm looking at the clock right now, and you know what? It's time for me to go. I wanted to thank you all for tuning in to the 15th of April, 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by me, Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, and it has been my pleasure having you with today, with us today. Thank you so much. Now, again, we were founded on July 18th, 1640, and Greenwich is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. You are part of our history, and we are very, very glad uh, to have you. The Greenwich A Town for All Seasons Show podcast is, as always, made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador at Museum United States of America, Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Now, you can always contact me at greenwichatownforallseasons at gmail.com. You can learn more about the show and listen to past shows for free by going to Greenwich A Town For All Seasons show 
or excuse me, Greenwich Town for All Seasons.blogspot.com. The show is also on Facebook, as am I, and also on some of the Greenwich, Connecticut community groups on Facebook. Um, uh, please also look for me, Jeffrey Binghamid, on Facebook. Send me a friend request, request and uh, well, uh, I'd love to socialize. So uh, let's get that done, shall we? Our next show is scheduled for next Friday, the 22nd of April, 2020, uh, 2022. Um, and uh, again, I would like to extend my heartfelt wishes to all of our Jewish friends and neighbors near and far for a glorious Passover celebration. Uh, please, uh, may you be uh, surrounded by love, prosperity, joy, and peace. And also to Christians, today is Good Friday, but we are anticipating, of course, Easter Sunday coming uh, just around the corner. Here's to wishing you joy and happiness. And I hope that you also feel renewed by the change of seasons and be filled with love and hope for the days to come. My warmest wishes to all, whether you have a faith tradition or not, I am grateful for the support and for the friendship that you all extend to me so much, and I thank you for it. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye now.